for me, I think it's a combination of, you know, those of us who are in the DEIA space as practitioners, working with our HR professionals who are in, you know, dealing with staff care and our wellness to really come together to figure out what are the strategies that we can put in place to help people, um, both those who are, you know, the introverts who, you know, don't want to come back or, you know, felt microaggression, but then also the supervisors who also need to be equipped with the tools on how to help their staff and how to help manage their staff. Hi everyone, welcome back to the All Inclusive podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Nene Diallo, Chief Diversity Officer at USAID. During the episode, Nene shares her observations on the differences in how Gen X and millennials approach DEI, and she offers insights into how organizations can bridge the gap between these generational perspectives to create more effective DEI strategies. Nene also highlights the critical steps that organizations can take to create sustainable change. As always, before jumping into the video, make sure to hit that subscribe button, turn on your notification bell and follow on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. That being said, let's jump in. Hi, Nene. Hi, Natasha. How are you? Oh, I'm so good. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Fine. Thank you. How's it in? Are you in London? Yes, we are in London. And actually, you know what? Today, the weather is not too bad. The sun has been shining, which doesn't happen very often. <laughs> I was going to say, I have family who uh, who live in London and they're always talking about the gray skies and always trying to get me to go out there. And I'm like, I don't think so. I actually like the, the seasons here. Yeah, I know. I know. It's it is a bit yeah, it's it's grey, the grey and windy city. Um, but I would say coming in the summer months, you will you're more likely than not should get some more sunshine. Because lately they've been really, really good. So I'd I'd say come in the summer, if anything. <laughs> well, I'll I'll have to try that then. <laughs> <laughs> so today we are gonna be talking all things D E and I. Um, but before we get stuck into that, I would really like you to share with us a little bit about you and tell our listeners how you have come to your journey that you are on today. Wow. Well, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to, to talk about all things diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility. We add the A to our DEI work um, and tell you a little bit about myself. So my journey here has not been a straight line. Um, I did not, you know, study, um, I'm not a DEI pr practitioner or technical expert in any way, shape, or form, um, but I am a believer in uh, change agent, um, believer in that, you know, we, we all live in a, in a world where inclusion, I think, is at the heart of, of everything, and globalization, I think, has taught us, taught us that. Um, born and raised in New York to West African parents. My mom hails from Sierra Leone. My father hails from uh, Guinea, both in West Africa. Um, but I say that I'm a New York before I'm even an American and anything else. Uh, <laughs> true and true. And I went to the international, the United Nations International um, School um, for high school, uh, middle school and high school. And I have to say that, you know, having that um, perspective growing up, not just in New York, which is a cosmopolitan international city in and of itself, and then also now going to the United Nations International School, that I was surrounded by diversity, right? And so I think that that really has shaped, you know, my perspective on, you know, and how I, you know, 
what I bring to this job and in, in this in this role. But I went to Rutgers University um, in New Jersey, uh, where I studied political science. And then once I left college, you know, had really didn't know if I wanted to go into law school or or what. And so I did a few um, internships, you know, with you know with a law firm. And then also did some work in entertainment, you know, as an internship um, at a public relations firm. Um, and uh, that public relations firm is called the Terry Williams Agency. And the reason why I mentioned that agency is because it really taught me um, the everything I needed to know in terms of building interpersonal relationships, building up that that competency of uh, people skills. Um, that are that are needed, I think, um, in this uh, in this job, and it has um, really shaped who I am. And so I give uh, a lot of credit to Terry Williams, um, you know, who launched that agency, you know, years ago in New York City. Um, give her a lot of credit to helping shape who I am as a person, and you know how I interact, and actually getting into this space, honestly. Um, so uh, from there, I. You know, I think my first job was uh, at a public relations firm. Then I moved out, out to California, where I worked in Hollywood for a few years, and then moved back to New York, worked in the news industry at CBS News, and then met my husband, who ended up working, you know, living in the Washington, D.C. area. So I moved down here about 20 years ago. And, you know, because uh, Washington is almost like being in Los Angeles where you are, it's like a one industry town. So it's just big government. And, uh, you know, you end up working in, in the space. And I have, you know, throughout the, my career trajectory, although I may have started off in public relations and, you know, here I am in government, the trajectory, the, the, the common denominator, I should say, has always been, you know, I think telling stories and communications, public relations, so public affairs, really, right, in the government space. Um, so I've always kind of stuck in there. So here I am today. <laughs> Fantastic. And so how have you seen or how, how what's your understanding of, of the evolution of diversity, equity, inclusion? What would you say? How, it's, how has it evolved since you've, you started working within it? Oh, wow. Let's see. So I started working, my entire career has been mainly, like I mentioned, in the uh, communications public affairs space. And I started working in uh, DEI really in 2014, 2015. Um, I had, you know, two kids, married two kids, and then got pregnant with my twins. And when we went from a family of four to a family of six, it completely changed. Yeah, the I can imagine. My oh my goodness! Day to day. I don't even. <laughs> do you know what? I'm a twin, and are you? Yeah, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. I'm a twin, and so, but my mom. I'm. I'm the only. Set, we were. We're the only set of twins that my mom had. So it was just literally. It was just um, me, my sister, and my mom. And so it was our our three little trio of girls in the house. Like <laughs> it was really fun. But I've now got a four year old, and I cannot imagine having twins like I mean like it's yeah. a gift it's definitely a gift from God I think it is, <laughs> it is. but to it then is. have like three and then or to have two kids already and then oh my goodness wow <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, well, hats off to your mom. And I hope, you know, now that you're a parent, you appreciate how she had double trouble on her hands. A hundred percent, yeah. One at a time. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it completely changed my life. Like no longer, I thought like, oh, you know, after I had my, my, my daughter, I was like, oh yeah, you know, I got up on a plane after, came back from maternity leave. And I was like, yeah, I can go to, you know, to OECD conference in, in Ghana, no problem. You know, I was still, you know, uh, I hope I can say this, you know, inclusive podcast. I was still breastfeeding at the time. Yeah, so imagine all that long way from, you know, DC to Ghana. I didn't have my baby and I didn't have a breast pump. So just Oh my goodness, you didn't have a breast pump. Through, <gasps> oh, oh hand pumping pump. is a, oh yeah. gosh, I had to hand yes. pump and uh, for a period of time because, yeah, pumps wasn't working for me. So, yeah, but no, I can, oh, wow. Okay, that's painful. amazing. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, amazing. Painful. So, yeah, so I said, okay, after having the twins, which was what, like three and a half years later, um, I come back from maternity leave, same thing. I'm like, oh, just so happened to be that it was another OECD meeting. This time it was traveling to Busan, South Korea, with um, uh, as part of the USAID uh, delegation and, and State Department delegation, really, uh, to, um, to Busan with the then Secretary of State, uh, Hillary Clinton. And... I remember waking up feeling like I woke up in the in the uh, in the air in the hotel and said to myself, "What am I doing here? Yeah, I, I I can't do this anymore. It was too much." So anyway, so took a step back and said, "All right, I need to slow down. What can I do to slow down?" I I really did love the mission of where I was working. It was not aid. It was another foreign aid agency called Millennium Challenge Corporation, and there was an opportunity to. Um, work in the diversity space, which is, you know, so instead of me doing a lot of the external communications, it was more internally looking. Um, and that was, had, already, had always interested me. Um, so I said, okay, I'm interested. Let's see what this diversity and inclusion space is. Um, at that point, um, then President Obama um, had issued the executive order for federal agencies to have a diversity and inclusion plan and a director. Um, and so I was offered the job and I, took a leap of faith and ventured into that. So what has changed between then and now? So we talk about 2014 to now. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of society, uh, society at that point didn't really catch on to diversity and inclusion, right? It was, I think, still pretty new, right? Again, I'm not a practitioner. I have not been doing this for decades, but you know, at least in the government space, it was something that was new, something that we knew that we needed to pay attention to. Um, we could not set targets, right? So in the government, you can't set targets and say, I need to reach X amount of African-Americans or Hispanics or women in the workforce. What we did was we just benchmarked against what the workforce, the US workforce um, showed us in terms of the census as to who was in the work, workforce. Yeah. And then yeah. use that, right? As our benchmark against what we are doing. Um, and I would say that it was a lot of... Uh, work around engagement, because if we can't set the targets, then how do we make sure that we are, A, doing the you know right outreach to different communities to ensure that they come in? And then what can we do to make sure that, you know, the staff who are with us now are engaged? How do we make sure that they're, you know, that they are um, empowered, you know, in their work? So for, for me, I think back then, um, the way that diversity, equity, and inclusion has evolved is literally that you know, things have become more complex over time. Um, so initially it was diversity and inclusion when President Obama issued his executive order 
And then it has slowly evolved to include equity. And then now people have included, you know, some agencies are using belonging or even the private sector is about belonging. And it's about um, accessibility, right? To ensure that we are truly capturing our entire world. Um, diversity, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people stop at diversity and they think it's about race and it's so not about just about race. It is about gender. It is about LGBTQI plus issues. It is about people with disabilities. It is about religious minorities or anybody, you know, religious groups. Um, it is also diversity of thought. So, you know, over time, you know, those of us in the space have to recognize that DEIA or DEIB or DEIAB, it is complex and it is about the intersectionality of identity and the real need to create environments that really honor people's various identities and lived experiences. Um, I think that's how it, is, had is, it has evolved. Um, you know, for me, as I mentioned, I attended the United Nations International School and I've made lifelong friends from around the world. Um, as a native New Yorker, diversity, I was born into diversity, right? Um, as with parents who, you know, hail from West Africa, I literally would coach switch, switch. It's, you know, you're, you are living with your life and as a New Yorker outside and you come home and you know that you're in an African home where you are eating the food and, you know, hearing the language and, you know, just embraced in that. And so for me, I bring that to, I think, my, my job. And so, for example, here at USAID, um, you know, again, we want to make sure that we are centering the, the voices of everyone here. Um, being an international aid organization, we work around the world and we work with, you know, walking the halls at aid, you are seeing people from different backgrounds. How do we, how can we be more intentional with that? And I think that's where we're at right now at USAID, being a bit more intentional with diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility um, and belonging, right? Again, uh, for some, um, and not just with this with, within USAID, but I think this administration in, in particular wants us to be a bit more intentional when we say diversity, equity, and inclusion. What does that mean? And how are we ensuring that we are embedding that in everything that we do? Mm. Oh, fantastic. No, I, I think it's, I agree with you. I feel like it's definitely come a long way in the in the recent years. Um, and we know that with the tragic events with George Floyd, that was a, a massive spark for for everyone to really think it's a paradigm about paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. right? And I think it was, and also because we were in lockdown, so there wasn't there wasn't anywhere you could go. Like you was at home. Like so, you had to face it. Um, and people were actually like, you know what? It's that's not okay. What are, what are we doing as a society? How is this even happening? Um, so I agree. I totally agree with you that I think in the first instance we were looking at diversity, um, and and that was a focal point. And we we've, we've definitely come a long way from from moving on from that and actually thinking about more about inclusivity and accessibility and and across all not just race and like not just the marginalized groups but it's there's so much intersectionality so it's going to touch everybody um what i wanted to hear from you actually is because i think there's a lot of conversation we talk about race we talk about um the lgbt plus plus a community uh we talk about the the 
disabled community so accessibility but i'm i'm interested to hear what about we've got ageism so you've got like the different gen z's the gen x's the millennials and the boomers four or five different generations in the workplace now (laughs) right yeah boomers generation x millennials gen z is there a gen y i think there is a gen y yeah i think there is gen y like there's so i mean there's so many generations now that are kind of working in the workplace all at the same time so how have you observed the differences in how kind of gen x and millennials approach diversity equity inclusion It's a very good question. Literally yesterday in one my staff meeting, I was telling my staff, I was like, you know, my my leadership team that I wanted to make sure that we I want to set up a time to meet with our interns because I believe they are probably gen, they're probably the Gen Y um generation because I wanted to learn from them. I want to learn from them. Um I think, you know, if we're just talking about Gen X, we you know, I'm part of Gen X. Um the generation that does not get spoken about a lot. <laughs> talk about boomers, people talk about millennials, people are not talking about Gen X, and we are definitely one to uh, to speak to because I think we're the ones who've been caught in the middle of the shift of what's happening in the world and the cultural shift that's, that's taking place in society. Um, so while Gen X and I think millennials may approach DEIA differently, I do believe that both generations truly recognize the importance of creating diverse and inclusive workplaces. Um, from my experience, Gen X tends to put a bit more value on, you know, hard work, individualism, merit-based systems, right? Not to say that millennials don't believe in hard work, <laughs> um, but I think that there is a, a, a more socially conscious awareness that um, millennials bring to the workplace that Gen X doesn't, for example, and Gen X are probably boomers, right? They are more um, likely to advocate for inclusive practices, you mm-hmm. know, like hybrid work. They're more, you know, apt to say, hey, I will not work for an organization because they do not align, their their values don't align with my values, right? And I think that's commendable. That, that should be commendable. I actually truly, 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 um, really appreciate that about them because while Gen X might say, hey, you know what? It is what it is. It's the workplace. It's the culture. Well, this is it. I know. think I think <laughs> that that generation, because I'm Gen Z as well. I'm, I'm Gen mm-hmm. Z. So it's like the, the next following on generation to, to yourself. And mm-hmm. I think um, at the start, I think we had very much tunnel vision when it came to to work, right? It was, okay, where am I going in my career? Who, what organization do I need to work for to get to, to, to for so that I can be successful? We weren't really asking the questions of who were, the, who were their customers? How do they contribute to the world? What sort of imprint are they making? How are they, what's the culture like? Like, I mean, if there was a couple of good people in my team, fantastic, I'll stick around. Do you know what I mean? Like if my, if right, my manager right. was okay, he, they just needed to be okay, then it'll be fine. Whereas now I feel like, like the millennials are asking those big questions right at the beginning when they're at sitting the in the interview, yes. rather than, mm-hmm. no, I'm not gonna accept this job and just wait and find out and see whether whether everything's okay. They're, they're mm-hmm. really being a lot more vocal and, and I agree, it's, it's, it's commendable, I, lo- I love it. Yeah, yeah. If anything, in the interviews, they're probably asking a lot more questions than mm-hmm. I know I did when I was in interviews. It's like, okay, I'll ask a question about the work, but they are more apt to ask the questions about the culture. What is the work 
culture like there? You know, can I, you know, do remote work? Can I, you know, uh, uh, what's the, what's, what, what, it, you know, would I be able to, you know, the flexibilities around the workplace definitely care, you know, millennials care more about that, I think, than Gen, Gen X would. Um, but I'm very curious to, I, I, I do believe that, you know, while we are in this multi-generational workplace and there is a, a desire, at least from my end, for we Gen X or Boomer managers to, you know, learn how to manage to the millennials and Gen Y, that I do think, you know, to be fair about inclusivity here, it's a two-way street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Because the younger I mean, generation also has to learn how to manage up. Right. And so that way there's a mutual understanding because it can't just always be one way. Mm, no, I agree. And I mean, that's that was my next question, really, is that how do you bridge the gap? I mean, for me, I think organizations need to foster a culture of open communication and collaboration. Um, I think, like I mentioned, there's a lot that we can learn from each other. And I think that, you know, for those of us who are in the manager, managerial positions of supervisors, we really have to create this a culture or an environment for psychological safety, right? Um, with everything that we've been through over the last, you know, three, four years now, has it been? Um, you know, again, from the start of, of you know, the George Floyd murder, murder and the um, social, you know, racial and um, social justice unrest that we've had, you know, I think not just here in America, but I think, you know, globally. Um, and then I think what we just experienced with COVID, I mean, let's, really put this into perspective. Had anybody told us 15, 20 years ago that we would have experienced a period where we would be on lockdown for practically three months, I think I would have laughed it off and said that only happens on TV and movies, right? Mm-hmm. But it happened. And we have been sitting down in our rooms, in our bedrooms or in our home offices with our families or not with our families and, and, and having to deal with work and having to deal with making sure that our children or our families or our, or our elders are safe or that we are safe, or that if somebody gets sick, like what that does to us when COVID first started, right? There's a lot that we, that we went through as a society. And I think we need to give ourselves grace for that. That's one. And now that you know the world is open back up again and we are coming back and returning into the office, you know, we're still in this hybrid mode. When we're talking about bringing people back into the office, that psychological safety that people probably felt, you know, who maybe have felt microaggressions when they were in the workplace, now felt really safe behind the camera. Well, now we're asking them to come back in or to turn on their cameras. How are we ensuring that we're creating that psychological safety for them? You know, having that open and safe environment, you know, really empowers our staff, me, everybody, you know, my peers and colleagues to show up as their whole self and gives them the capacity to develop and implement effective, you know, employee engagement strategies. You know, it's not just business as usual. It can't just be, oh, we've come back and pretend that nothing ever happened. Lockdown happened for three years. (laughs) Yeah, it was a long time. Yeah. (laughs) That's nothing. That's not, that's not like little time. I mean, your, your, your four-year-old, you know, her personality has changed from the time that she was born until now, from the mm-hmm. time she could walk until now. So the same thing has probably happened with, 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 with human beings. You know, my children in their cohort, when they went back to school, there were so many issues that teachers had to deal with because of what we went through. And I don't think that enough attention has been paid 
you know, to that when it comes to the adults and coming back into the workforce and, you know, really creating that psychological safety. So for me, I think it's a combination of, you know, those of us who are in the DEIA space as practitioners, working with our HR professionals who are in, you know, dealing with staff care and our wellness to really come together to figure out what are the strategies that we can put in place to help people, um, both those who are, you know, the introverts who, you know, don't want to come back or, you know, felt microaggression, but then also the supervisors who also need to be equipped with the tools on how to help their staff and how to help manage their staff. Mm, I think it's, it's, it's the key thing really is to making sure that you're really touching everyone, every part of the organization at every level with, exactly. with, with these initiatives and, and programs and, and any changes that you're making. Um, right. Because it, it literally impacts everyone all in, in all at the same time all in a different way um exactly and it's not easy work it's a lot of work so and we know that there's there's a lot of practitioners DEI practitioners DEI leaders that unfortunately have have left their roles because it's just it's too much so how do you think um organizations can really support their leaders um, in order for them to be able to continue doing this great work? Oof, that's a very, very good question. <laughs> so there, there are lots of factors that contribute to the attrition. Um, and the emotional labor that you, that you mentioned is, is huge. Um, you know, not having enough support. Uh, there was a recent Forbes article that talked about how, you know, DEI leaders wish that they could clone themselves. And, you know, we're constantly talking in this office, like we need to clone ourselves. And luckily, you know, USAID has hired um, advisors across the agency um, who work in the diversity space uh, to help, you know, their respective bureaus and offices. And we've got a fantastic um, program in our HR division, you know, called Staff Care that is also there to help support um, um, people. But I think the the emotional toll that is on the DEIA practitioners in particular is because right now everything has become DEIA, mm. right? Return to work. We need to make sure that we are considering the DEIA factors. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, 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 you know, some staff don't feel safe in certain countries because of a rollback of some, some uh, human civil rights it becomes a DEIA issue. Not that it shouldn't be, but everything, more things have become, have fallen under the DEIA umbrella than mm, before. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, I think it's really, really critical that people understand that DEIA is everyone's responsibility and that we all have to work together. It is about leading with inclusion. And I think once leaders and managers lead with inclusion, then they embody DEIA, you won't even need these positions, right? Or hopefully you wouldn't need as many of them. Um, but it is the kind of work that really needs a very meticulous, inclusive approach to ensuring that we are, again, institutionalizing this everywhere where it does become everybody's responsibility and that people recognize that it is their responsibility. So organizations can support their DEIA leaders by providing them with the resources you know, support and recognition that they need to succeed to really make a lasting impact. Um, people are getting triggered by DEIA right now, um, good or bad reasons, I don't know. But 
DEIA is not a bad thing. This is not a, a zero sum game. This is about making sure that we are increasing opportunities for people. This is about making sure that we are, you know, um, creating an environment where people feel, feel respected, they feel safe, they feel included, they feel empowered, and that there's that, again, psychological safety. So that's not just the role of my office or my team or, or me, that's the role of everybody. You want to create an environment where your staff feel empowered and engaged and you want them to be productive um, and, and to deliver on, on, and you know, create impact then create that environment for them. It cannot be to the person who has the, the DEIA in their title. It's not their job, it's all of our jobs. Um, and so I think you know, with, the, with the high attrition rate in this space, I think it's because people are looking to that one sole person who probably doesn't have enough resources to do their job. And that's why we're seeing that attrition. So if you wanna hold on to your you know, chief diversity officers or your DEIA specialists or DEIA program managers, you know, give them the resources that they need and also check in on them and make sure they're doing okay. Because not only are they doing the work for the people to help your staff and your, your employees thrive, but they then have, they don't get to necessarily take this work home because they go home and then they've got to create that environment for themselves and for their families. And then are hearing all the, you know, sometimes the negative talk in the news that is working against this. Um, and so I think, you know, especially here in the US, I'm not sure what it's like in, in the UK right now, but it, it's tough because we don't ever seem to kind of get to remove ourselves from it. So yeah, no, know, I, I'm not constantly telling my, my staff, take space and take grace for yourself and take time to make sure that you are taking care of yourself too. Yeah, because I don't know, no, it's, it, it's very similar here. It's 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 hard like you, you you're, you're fighting the good fight but yeah you're getting hit from 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 the left field like like no um so yeah it, it can be quite difficult and i am um, i agree with you it's it's so important that actually it's it's everyone's job to to create that in inclusive environment um and what i was actually going to ask for you personally like so is there anything that you found along the way that's really helped you so for me i think you know, again, I bring it back to communication. So it goes back to like, you know, my, my experience and, and that, I, that I shared earlier. Conversation. Like, I, I'm not afraid of having conversations with people who don't think like me. I actually welcome that, right? Mm. I actually think in our society, that's what we're, we're missing here. We're so tunnel vision. So whether it's the news that you watch, you're continually just watching that news that's going to give you the information that you're looking for that confirms your own bias and thinking. I actually welcome different thinking. I, I welcome having conversations. I, I'm going to be, you know, as part of a newsletter series that we um, publish here monthly, I'm going to start a video uh, conversation series where, you know, probably doing like what you're doing here, where I'm inviting people, you know, from within the, the agency, maybe outside of the agency, to not just talk about things that that are, I, I think, you know, where, we, where we're trying to find ways where we agree on everything. Yeah. But let's have the conversation where we don't agree so that way we can come to an understanding because I think that we can still do that in society, right? I'm not trying to, and I'm not trying to be a kumbaya thing. I, I, I don't believe that, you know, everybody, we all must get along and we all must think the same way. But 
we should be able to come together because of our differences, yeah. right? Yeah. We, we all don't have the same ideology. That would be a very boring world if it was. But it doesn't mean that because we think differently that we must continuously be at war or be in conflict. So let's come together and have that. So that is actually a project that I'm I'm working on that I'm looking forward to. Mm, to I think it's to, important. Uh, to embarking on. Yeah, no, yeah, that, sounds, that sounds fun. Because like yeah. if we're we're all about we keep saying, Oh, bring your full selves to work, want you to feel like you belong, like you've got a voice. Well, like just because you're saying something different to what I'm saying doesn't mean that your voice is less smaller than mine or mine is louder, like should be placed ahead of yours. Do you know, I, exactly. I, I totally agree. I think, and, and it's exactly. important that we actually continue that messaging as well. Um, because I think a lot of people think that with diversity, to inclusion, it's just about, oh, well, okay, that means like I now have to hire the black person. We're not going to be actually just hiring right. the person that's right for the job. No, no, that's not what we're saying. We're exactly we're saying exactly. that we're that trying to give everyone the, the the equal opportunity to go for the job exactly. because a lot of black people exactly. haven't got that <laughs> so when you open the doors exactly. you're actually probably going to find that the black person is is just so happens to be a good candidate for the job but unfortunately exactly. i know it's just like unfortunately the way that things are working well the way that the world has been is that that black person never got through the door they they, they weren't given the opportunity um exactly. and so it's the same with with being able to discuss or if you've got a, a, a different opinion um that doesn't mean that you're not a valued contributor to the conversation um actually to be fair it's probably going to be even more better because then you can really find a, a, a real solution exactly yes oh you are so speaking my life <laughs> I, know, this is, I can talk to you forever on this <laughs> or is that really a good thing maybe we should get someone else on here that's that's not speaking our language <laughs> but no 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 this has been so fun <laughs> yeah um so one of my um next questions actually was um what's one of the projects that you're working on now that that you're that you're most excited about because I know there's a lot of work that you've been doing and so I'd love to hear something that that you're doing currently now or, or have done which has been really really impactful so um I guess aside from the uh the, the video conversation um series I just mentioned um we're doing a lot of work with academic institutions that have been historically under that are historically underrepresented. So whether it's working with historically black colleges and universities, you know, HBCUs, or working with Hispanic serving institutions, um, and working with um, tribal colleges and universities, um, working with the Native American population, and then also um, institutions that have a large population of our Asian American uh, and Pacific Islander um, demographic uh, communities. I am really excited about working with them because in those institutions, because they have so much to offer. One of the first schools that uh, I, I witnessed an MOU signing with Administrator Samantha Power is with Alcorn State University, which is a land grants HBCU university here in the United States, the first one. And they have uh, some of the most advanced research um, departments in the world, in the country. And we sent over students from Alcorn State University to Guyana, where they worked on climate mitigation risk projects um, with their Guyanese peers um, at, the, I believe, the University of Guyana. I love that 
project and that portfolio of work because I get to work and highlight and connect with some of the brightest minds in the United States in these institutions that nobody's probably ever heard of or have hardly ever heard of and giving them an opportunity to go and do some of you know innovative work in some of the projects that we're working in around the globe and for me that is exciting because I get to not just work with them, but also elevate their voices and elevate their work so that they can be seen. And to me, like without a doubt, if I leave here and I didn't do anything else but that work, I'd be happy. Oh, that's amazing. Um, I don't even know what to say because I'm like, oh, that's so that's so inspirational, <laughs> and it's it's it must be so so life-changing for them to be able to to do that great work and then come back and just look back on on how amazing and and how impactful that 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 has been for them and and that will be for the people that live there um absolutely yeah yeah some of them you know just to 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 let you know like you know some of them have already been doing this work it's just again they just haven't been Mm. elevated nobody's nobody's known or they're doing it and they're doing it here in the united states right in their own backyards with those students in particular, some of them have never left their communities. You know, they're in Mississippi or other um, uh, states where they may never have ever left the country or even known that this was an opportunity for them. And so we get to, you know, I'm not trying to, this is not to, to, to downplay them because some of them are, again, some of the most brilliant minds who've, you know, well-traveled, but there's some of them who haven't and don't yeah. even know that this is an option. So for me, could get to work on that portfolio where it's like, you know, Again, opening the world, you know, to them and introducing them to the world, but also introducing the world to them. So that way everybody gets to understand and learn from them as well. So anyway, I, I, I can't say any, any more about it. It just excites me a lot to see the potential that we can create. No, it's, 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 it's definitely sounds exciting. Um, and I'm, I'm so pleased because it, it, it's more, I hope that there's more things and initiatives and programs out there that are like that because um, there definitely should be. And I hope that who, anyone who listens to this, who has room or resource to be able to create something like that, go do it because it, yes. it's definitely going to be life-changing. Um, Absolutely. So what would you say is, what would you say is one of the critical steps that an organization should should take in order to create sustainable change? One of the most critical steps is to make a long-term commitment to equity, inclusion, accessibility, and diversity. And I, I, I purposely said that in a different, in not the DEIA acronym, because I, I don't want people to be stuck there. I think that if you lead with inclusion, you can get it right. Um, but this really truly involves, you know, embedding the principles of diversity, equity, inclusion into an organization's culture, its policies, its practices, and then really ensuring that it's a priority at all levels. Now, this is gonna take time, it takes intentionality, it takes commitment, because change does not happen overnight. So understanding that this is a long game is really critical. Um, and I, I believe that that's what has led to, you know, a lot of the progress that we've made here at USAID. Um, USAID has always championed inclusion, 
Um, so it's the foundation. We've got, you know, our inclusive development hub that does fantastic work in the space in our programs. We have our gender inclusion and um, women's empowerment um, uh, division that also works and has been working on, you know, gender inclusion for years. And, you know, we're only building stronger from that. So this is not anything that's new for aid. But what we are doing is bridging the internal, what used to be just an internal DEIA construct with our external work and our programming and bringing it together so that we are truly institutionalizing this. So we know and understand that what lies on the other side of the inevitable disruption and discomfort is a safer, more respectful and more inclusive workplace. And that's what we're aiming for here. Oh, fantastic. Would you say that, because I, I, I like the, the way you talk about like kind of the internal and also working on the external. For, would you say that creating these initiative programs, pushing for um, equity and inclusion should be, you should only start with the internal in the first instance and then look to, to external or that actually you should be doing both both together at the same time? So for at, at USAID, and I think just in general, right, everybody's been working on their programs mm. before DNI became a thing. And so I think if you are, let's say, a startup right now, just starting up, whatever your organization is, you, you should do both at the same time. And the way you do it at the same time is to say, okay, when I'm coming up with my corporate strategy, I need to make sure that DEIA is embedded in that. And that happens when you're working on your human capital strategy, DEIA should be embedded in that. What used to happen is, oh, I've got my corporate strategy. Okay, I've got my human capital strategy. Oh, okay, now let me create this DEI strategy here. That doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's why diversity and inclusion historically has always been seen as a this this side initiative as opposed to part and parcel of your business and your business strategy and your capital strategy. So the more you again are more intentional about that about that, you will get it right. You know, and I'm not going to say get it right; it's going to be perfect, but at least it's a fantastic start. Yeah, you're on the you right know, track. DEIA can't, right, you're on the right track. DEIA can't be an afterthought. It has to be that you've got somebody who's there who's saying, okay, as we're building out this team, do we have the right people? You know, I used to work at a place where, for example, the entire leadership, very diverse, African-American, you had women, you had other races, you know, um, et cetera. They were all trained from Yale and Harvard. That's not diversity. Yeah, that's not diversity of thought at all when everybody's trained in the same in the same vernacular. So truly building your team and building your culture and building what your 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 organization is going to do in terms of programming. I think it should be done at the same time. One can't go before the other. Right now we're, we're doing a lot of retrofitting. Right. And that's where we get into the, the debates about, you know, merit based oh, well, now we're trying to hire people, you know, because, what, you know, yeah. we've hired one group yeah. that all look the same. All of a sudden now when it's hiring different people, it becomes like, oh, well, it's no longer about merit. It's a whole affirmative mm -hmm. action um, move. And that's not the case. It's to your point. We're opening up the opportunity to people who 
didn't even know the opportunity existed or have been historically left out for a variety of reasons. Um, so yeah, I, I think that is something that has to be done together and not, not one first and then the other. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Danae. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. I, I literally, too, I, could, I could really speak to you for so much longer. Um, so for, for anyone who is listening um, and they want to connect with you, how can they find out more about your work and, and, and connect? Absolutely. Um, please visit USAID.gov. That's USAID.gov. Um, and if you have any questions uh, for me, you can always reach out to DEIA at USAID.gov. Oh, fantastic. Well, I will be um, placing um, links to those sites below the episode. So whoever does want to learn a little bit more, they're able to do that and also can reach out for if they've got any questions off the back of this conversation. But as I said, Renee, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat today and I, I'm, I'm excited to see all the great, more great work that USAID are doing and yourself. Appreciate you so much, Natasha. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for having me in. Anytime. I'm happy to come back. <laughs>